I'm John. I'm Paul. I'm George. And I play the drums. From Pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network, it's Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette and Chachi's co-host, Beatles instructor at Suffolk University, David Galan. Well, welcome to Get Back to the Beatles on the Boston Podcast Network, Pod617.com. Thank you for joining us. My name is Chachi LaPrade, and it's a pleasure to be here with you. Today's podcast is brought to you by Direct Tire and Auto Service, as well as Subaru of New England. Thanks to both of those organizations for helping out. They love the Beatles, and that's why they help us with our podcast and my Breakfast with the Beatles radio show on WUMB 91.9 FM in Boston. Today on our podcast, we're going to remember my favorite Beatle, Beatle George Harrison, on the month of his birthday. We're here in, uh, recording in late in February. George Harrison's birthday, February 25th, although some people say the 24th. He was on either side of midnight there, but most uh, agree that his birthday is February 25th. And of course, joining me uh, in our podcast room here is our co-host and dear friend, Professor David Gallant, who teaches the Beatles course at Suffolk University in Boston. Hello, David. How are you? How are you, Chachi? I'm doing well and uh, very excited that we have a George-centric podcast today. Yes, we're going to talk about George Harrison, his life. We'll have a, a couple of guests on our show today as well. And uh, one guest will be Rob Murray. Rob will be calling in uh, in the second half of our podcast. Rob is in the band Studio 2, the early Beatles tribute. Rob has the pleasure and the job of playing George Harrison. So we're going to hear from him about what it's like to be George on stage. And our first guest on our phone is a dear friend, and I'm sitting here with her book, uh, one that I've read many times. And she's the author of Beatleness, The Fan's Eye View, How the Beatles and Their Fans Remade the World. And we want to welcome Dr. Candy Leonard. Hello, Dr. Candy Leonard. How are you? <laughs> Good. How are you, Tashi? Uh, it's great to speak to you again and have you on our podcast. This would be, what, second or third time you've been with us? Third time, I think. Is it something third? Something like that. Yeah, yeah, something like that. We always love to have her on. Uh, she brings a female perspective uh, to what we discuss, and I love that. And she has... Uh, she's very outspoken, has great opinions, and she did uh, much research in her book about what fans thought of the Beatles. And today we're talking about George Harrison, as I said, born to Louise, Louise and Harry Harrison on February 25th, 1943. Mom and, ba- Mom and dad, two brothers, Peter and Harry, and a sister, Louise. George attended the Liverpool Institute in September 1954, where he met Paul McCartney. And George, early in his life, was consumed by skiffle, so his mom helped him out and got him a new guitar. At the same time, he was sent uh, by the Youth Employment Center to apply for a job as a window dresser at Blacklist Department Store, but, but instead became a trainee electrician, which was short-lived, thankfully. At the same time, he became friends with this other student by the name of Paul McCartney. They met on bus number 86. Soon after, George joined up uh, with the quarrymen, with his friend Paul, and another gentleman uh, by the name of John Lennon. And that's uh, the stage The stage is set from there, and we'll talk uh, for the next hour or so about Beatle George, my favorite Beatle. So, Candy, um, yeah. your, your book, where did George land amongst the other three in being role models? Did, the, did parents rest easier when they learned that their daughters had a crush hmm. on George Harrison, perhaps maybe better than having a crush on John Lennon. And I know your book explored all of these questions with all of uh, the people that participated in your research. So where, does, where is George in that whole landscape? 
Well, um, it's true that the, you know, in the early days when, you know, picking a favorite was quite an important thing to do. Um, in fact, we still talk about the Beatles in terms of your favorite. I'm Chachi. I'm sure you get asked several times a week by random strangers on the street who know who you are, like, who's your favorite Beagle, right? It's a, it's a perennial question. But um, in the early days, the girls who liked John tended to be, you know, and John had a little bit more edge to him, you know, he's a little more cheeky or a little more, you know, bad boyish, you know. So, um, you know, George, of course, was the quiet one. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, what I'm remembering is that I, I, don't, I mean, obviously there are many people who had, you know, George as their fave, but I don't remember a particular sort of, let's say, personality type or, uh, you know, the, the people who are George people tend to be blah, blah, blah. Now, of course, that's then. Today, I would say that uh, I mean, George has become my favorite Beatle. He wasn't uh, back in the day. In fact, he he only became my favorite Beatle probably within the last few years. Really? Why is that? Well, it's actually it's an interesting thing. I, you know, people would say, well, what are your top 10 Beatles songs or what are your favorite Beatles songs? And I found, I mean, for many years, I had a disproportionate number of George songs. I mean, we consider the whole body of the Beatles' work. You know, George makes up a pretty small, you know, percent. But yet, my top songs are all these George songs. So, I, you know, so I said, okay, you know. Then, um, the more I thought about it, and I think more recently, as I myself have become more spiritual in a way, I feel like I'm relating to him more. I'm relating to his songs as I said, they've always been among my favorites, but I feel like that's becoming even more true, and I'm realizing their value to me in, in new ways, I guess you might say. Um, so, I don't know, I just, there's something about him. You know, he, he was quiet compared to the others, one you might say, but he had an enormous, enormous impact, um, you know, beyond the brilliant guitar work and the brilliant songs that he contributed mm-hmm. Um, he, he had an enormous influence uh, and, you know, leaves a really important legacy, I think. And, and uh, David Gallant, your students, how do, they, <clears throat> how do they perceive George? How do they, do they like him, not like him? What are their opinions on George? Well, you know, uh, the perennial question, as Candy says, about who's your favorite Beatle, I actually have kind of institutionalized that question in my class, and it's a response paper that they have to hand in at the very end of the term to uh, not just name their favorite Beatle, but explain why. And this has actually come and gone in different cycles throughout the last dozen or so years that I've been teaching the class. And I think that a lot of students going into the course may have had a preconceived notion about who a favorite Beatle might be. And um, George wasn't always the first on their lips, but by the end of the course, he started to take a more prominent share of the votes, if you will. And I think some of it is... Oh, I don't know, maybe a, a, a particular cultural sense of rooting for the underdog, even though Ringo was as much of an underdog as anybody in joining the band and having the career that he had. But there's some attraction to George, somewhat as the quiet one, but maybe always the thinking one. I think what appeals, yes, uh, yes. Uh, uh, appeals to George from a, for a lot of the students is, especially when they see some of the filmic texts, whether it's the anthology or other interviews, his sense of, say, comedic timing within the group is, is, is just perfect. It's always note perfect. Today, in fact, Candy, 
Um, I'm reading from your book in class and uh, uh, the, some of the early assignments uh, regarding the Beatles coming to the U.S., talking about that transition from the Kennedy 60s to the Beatles 60s. And we are analyzing, and I, you, it's wonderful the way you term their press conference at JFK as a performance, which really it is, a spontaneous theater. And the question about, are you going to get a haircut when you're here? And they mm-hmm. were saying, no, no. And George says, I had one yesterday. And they all and admit he looked that, so, uh, yeah, and I'm sorry. He, he, couldn't, he couldn't wait to drop that line in, partly because right. it was all so true. And so I stopped the film there and we discuss the impact that it had where you could look at this young man and the haircut he had. And yes, that's a young man who just got a haircut. And that already is a <laughs> massive cultural shift. And so yeah. that and the audio clip from uh, Live at the BBC, you know, how are you dealing with fame? You know, oh, we can't go to certain restaurants. We go to certain ones. And then George comes in at the end. We go to ones where the people are so snobby, they pretend they don't know us, so we have a good time. So his sense of like the last in <laughs> yeah. the line of the Marx Brothers routine is always, is always note perfect. And when students say, well, I can't pick a favorite one, and they go with the old cliches of they're like the wheels on a car. You need all four to go or the right, four, four right. Compo- composite parts of the of the human being. Um, George still comes across as kind of that final piece, even though Ringo was the final piece. George is seemingly that glue that is necessary for everything else, maybe because he was termed, you know, the soul of the group. Right. And uh, I wouldn't right. say that if I had my top 10 Beatles songs, he would have a lion's share of them. But I think some of his uh, his moments are incredible, which I'm sure we'll get mm-hmm. to. And I remember before yeah. we uh, began, I I pointed out in my good old trusty or not so trusty Ian McDonald what my favorite George song was, and it surprised Chachi. I I, I pointed what out your favorite George song, The Inner Light. Oh, I think The Inner Light is a great song. Yeah, I think <laughs> I, I wouldn't call it my favorite George song, but it's definitely up there. It you is. Know? Well, he, he was really, you know, like, obviously John was, I mean, in some sense, I think they were all deep thinkers. I mean, they were thrust into this bizarre situation as young men, which I think sometimes we forget that. Um, so they all handled it in their own way. But they were, they were all thoughtful people. They were all kind of, you know, thinkers in their way. But George, I don't know, he brought some, he brought this kind of quiet, sort of dry sense of humor and he also, like, he, he had some really astute observations about things. Like when he said, the Beatles saved the world from boredom. You know, like, I don't exactly say that in my book, but it's kind of, you know, that is one conclusion. So, I mean, like, I agree with that in a way. Like, he, they, they did save the world from boredom. And the other thing he always says, he, he uh, said, um, we gave, like, they gave their screams, we gave our nervous system. Right, you know, right, right, was, right. He, they they use this. Always, they, they use this as an excuse always, to go crazy and then blamed us for it. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> he um he always seems the thing about him too that I actually think is kind of appealing is that he always seems slightly annoyed, right? He's like always kind of grousing about one thing or another, you know, like he, he's like I don't know, but but there's something sort of endearing about it. And he, you know, the other thing, too, like, he came in as the, as the, you know, youngest, you know, when it was just Paul, George, and John, he was the youngest. Paul brought him in. John resisted him at first because he mm-hmm. seemed like a kid. And so George really, I mean, if you, um, it must have been so difficult for him to be in that space with those two huge egos and, 
you know, just kind of there. And if you think about, you know, their, their, the way they arrange themselves on the stage, you see George kind of in the middle there, sometimes, you know, sharing a mic with John, but more often with Paul. And so he kind of did sort of move between them, like literally in, in that way on stage. And a friend of mine says, describes him as the luckiest guy in the world, you know, to have been in a band with Paul and John. But I think that's kind of unfair because he made enormous contributions, obviously, from the get-go. And the other, you know, in terms of his legacy, I think that his, um, you know, introducing a generation to world music was is very significant. The whole, um, you know, Maharishi and meditation thing, you know, might have happened anyway, but George was, well, I should say Patty, but um, through George was, you know, that was the impetus for that came from George. So he did bring this really spiritual component, I think, mm -hmm. that um, is really, really important. Well, the other th the thing about <clears throat> when I first was exposed to the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show, uh, he was, it looked like he was having the least amount of fun out of all the four but only because yeah. he was a musician, he was intent on what he was playing. And, you know, John and Paul accepted him despite his age because his ability of playing guitar, his musicianship. Yeah. So, I, you know, I was immediately attracted to Ringo. He's up on the pedestal there, and he's having fun and playing. George, a little more somber in the middle of the other two, but focused on his playing, smiling on occasion and going back and forth on his legs as a little dance that he does. But um, I grew from loving Ringo as my favorite Beatle and going to George precisely because of what Candy said, he was living in the shadow of the two of the greatest songwriters uh, that ever lived, but he worked his way up to that level, maybe even surpassing it on occasion with some of his tracks, and he was just an astute uh, musician and maybe perhaps the most gifted musician out of all four. You never know. Yeah. So. yeah. But, yeah. Uh, you know... The the thing I mean, about the, the audacity of bringing within you without you to be put on Sgt. Pepper. I mean, you know, I mean, that's it's in a way the centerpiece of the record. And I know, you know, in my book, a lot of fans talked about skipping it. They didn't like it or it was too serious. Some of them found it like it was like being in church. A couple of people said, um, but it, I think it's one of their most important songs. I really do. Right, and that's a song that you either love or hate, I suppose, but I, I love it. Professor Gallant, what do yeah. your students it's, think of Within Without You? Isn't, well, it, isn't I, it an acquired taste? Um, not as much as an acquired taste as Revolution Number 9, but... Or In uh, the Light. <laughs> yeah. It, it, well, I think that what, you know, in uh, the, uh, uh, the Cambridge Music uh, Handbook Series, Alan Moore uh, talks about uh, Within You Without You as, as the moral center of the album, and actually, the yeah. only the only piece within Sgt. Pepper that really has anything to say, because the album was really all about, you know, the experimentation in sound, the form, uh, the 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 twist of a of the concept of a concept of an album, and the artwork and the whole total package. But it's actually the only song that has anything to say, and and part of the critique of it is that generation wasn't quite ready. Even to have their their personal politics of 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 free love and, and experimentation within that George is already thinking that there's a BS aspect to it, you know that and not to be fooled by all of this and and to to approach it realistically 
and to approach it with a clear-eyed sense of um, of of uh, of a perspective that you're not going to get carried away with it. And so, in that sense, he is he, oddly enough. It seems that it's it's almost a duality that he is the one of the four who first is getting into a spirituality that is looking beyond this world, yet he also has his feet firmly planted in this world. And that's really quite a, a fine line to walk, which is why even as early as I love the scene that was written for him by Alan Owen in A Hard Day's Night, if I can only take one piece of that film away besides the opening sequence, it's the scene with George and, and Simon, the advertising guy. That right, has that right. has the message of the movie wrapped up in that two three minute segment. Within you, without you, mm-hmm. is is overall the message of that point in '67, and and Sergeant Pepper wrapped up in that song. And so, right. um, well, and you know, he loved that moment on it. I suppose he didn't love the whole idea of the album, as he says, but he had that moment. And uh, so, yeah, from in my, it's the most teachable aspect. In terms of music within uh, that album, well, let me let me just point out two things. George Harrison had one of the real moments on a hard day's night, very real. The opening segment, face plant, when he falls in the ground, Ringo falls on him, and he that was certainly not planned. And as he continues to run, he's looking at his hand to see how how badly he cut himself. So a very real moment. <laughs> but also from Candy's book, and I'm going by memory here, Candy. But I recall that there was a person you spoke to who felt that within without you kind of was like um, was like going to church and you had to listen yeah. because it was very important. Is that correct? Yes, and I think that that um, the, the fact that the lyrics were on the back, I think, maybe doesn't get the uh, attention. You know, it, it, we're so used to it now, we don't even notice it anymore, but it, they were the first to do that. And, I, and the takeaway for fans was that they obviously wanted us to read this, you know. And so, you, so within you, without you, as the centerpiece, or one of you said before, the, the spiritual centerpiece, um, you paid attention to it. You read the word, you listened to it, and there was something serious about it. You know, there, there, it, it, it's not, there's nothing lightweight in it. There's no comic, well, of course, at the ending, they added a little comic relief with the, you know, sound effects of the audience. But the song, is, it's a very serious song. It, it, it commands it, it command, demands your attention. As the and, kids, uh, as the kids would say, Candy, it's a very woke moment in the album. I think, in many ways, that song encapsulates uh, much of what I um, call, although some people don't like when I talk about this. But I, I think it, it really encapsulates uh, the kind of the Beatles philosophy. There's a takeaway message there in that song. I mean, I think there are a few, but it's very consistent with um, what the Beatles have come to stand for, I think. And uh, I think this song gets better with age. I think it, I think it stands up. I mean, the whole album, you know, you know I guess, you know, it depends on one's mood, I suppose. But I, I think that that song um, is really a, really the standout song today and on that record. And there's one thing to remember. There's a very uh, funny Danny Harrison story that I've played on my show. And he, and he speaks about him talking to George and saying, hey, I can't believe I graduated from, you know, Brown University in Providence and... 
and he was like what 23 maybe something yeah, like that yeah. and george goes oh well let me see what was i doing at that age oh sergeant pepper you know so <laughs> <laughs> a very funny a very humorous guy but one thing that i think is important to touch on for people listening that may not know this but george was the only beetle that came from a full family nucle- nucleus he had a yeah. mom and dad yeah. two brothers and a sister and the others didn't so i don't know if that played right. into any of this I think it's extremely important. Look, I mean, one thing I remember reading somewhere, I can't quite remember where, was that his mother was also a fan of Indian music. And so he did hear that. Um, I think he, I think I remember reading somewhere that his mother used to listen on, there was, you know, again, like in the UK, there was a closer relation to India than we have here. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. that there was an Indian music station or that the BBC had a, time of the day where they would play Indian music. I vaguely remember reading that somewhere, but I think the fact that he had, you know, more of a traditional family, well, Paul sort of did too, but you can see George's family really, in a sense, exemplifies the fact that these guys um, had a lot of support behind them. You know, like they, their parents were really, I mean, even though, you know, Aunt Minnie was not so into it, ultimately they all had an enormous amount of support from family and their community. Mm-hmm. And I think you can really see that with George's, like his father was a bus driver, but got them an early gig at some bus driver party or something. And I think uh, his mother went to most of the shows at the camera or started going to a lot of the shows. So the love of his family and, and um, you know, the the warmth of the arguing and the playfulness and the scout humor in the household, I think that all, you know, made him who he was in a lot of ways. And, and I will back that up by saying, you know, when I had my Beatles show on WBCN in the 80s and 90s, I had a producer who has since passed away. His name was Scott Wheeler. Scott was a dear friend and uh, a musician, a huge Beatles fan. And when he was a, a kid... Uh, him and his parents went to London and they went to Liverpool and they walked up to George's family home, knocked on the door. Louise Harrison answered the door, brought them in. Wow. And they, Scott and Louise Harrison went on b- to be pen pals for many years. And I have, oh, a, wow. I have a book at home with Xerox copies of all the letters they exchanged with Harry Harrison, Louise Harrison. They brought him into George's bedroom Louise gave Scott a playlist that was sitting on George's bureau, and they did this often. They took fans in, and Scott became friends with the Harrisons, and then he went on to write a book about Uncle Charlie Lennon. And since then, Scott has passed away, but I have those things at home. And he had a relationship with Louise and Harry Harrison. It's pretty amazing. That is. That is. They seem like really nice, warm people. From pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network. You're listening to Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette. From the Pod 617 studios in Westwood, Massachusetts, it's Are You Not Entertained? The was I and and the am I entertained? Can I start that again? Sorry. Am I entertained? I did it again. (laughs) Dumbass! Are you entertained? Ah! All right, sorry, sorry. It's Ed Nathanson. I'm here to give you the podcast that I've always wanted to do. That's talking about movies. That's talking about music, sports, pop culture. That's talking to some of the best people in employer branding around the world. Are you not entertained? Can I start that again? 
Candy, you, yeah. you, you talk about the family support. What I've always found interesting is that for having been so young, uh, George seemed to have a lot of free, uh, freedom to roam about. I mean, he was sort of checking out all the other basement clubs and things like that, and he knew of uh, of uh, Pete Best over in Heyman's Green and that club that uh, Mona ran. And so George mm-hmm. got George got around for being a young kid and had a little bit more uh, freedom, if you will. Certainly you're talking about Mimi and the way that she looked after John or or even um, <clears throat> Jim McCartney telling his son, I don't like you hanging out with that Lennon. And uh, <laughs> right, so George right, seemed right. kind of safe, but he would find things and get them to venues or show them other places that they could go. And uh, in that sense, he's kind of a, a little bit of a, you know, again, kind of cliche, kind of the unsung hero. Uh, and you mentioned Within You Without You, you mentioned going to, India, and at that moment, they were kind of, you know, willing to go where even George would lead them, right? I mean, if if oh. all of the uh, oh. all the other indulgences and the drugs and the sex were not sort of giving them the answer, maybe this would give them the answer, and we know it helped them through Brian's passing, and really that is a, a large credit to George, and when they went to India, pretty much because this was George's suggestion to get them into transcendental meditation— we know everything that India did for them and to them as a group, kind of like Hamburg might have done in the early days and how it changed mm-hmm. the group dynamics. They figured out more of who they were and who they wanted to be or not wanted to be. And that really is, uh, I think, you know, due to, uh, due to what George led them to. And uh, the other thing about, you know, he stayed true to a lot of those commitments that he discovered about himself and about spirituality, it- knew that it was going to serve his purposes and his needs through meditation, through those belief systems, knew when he was not necessarily going to be able to continue, if you will, playing that type of music. He took it as far as he could go, and then took a different, uh, and then took a different direction. But you're right about opening up that whole part of the world and its musical traditions, and even how it interacted with standard Western pop music or rock and roll too. Yeah, yeah. You know. I mean. He- I mean, I think they were all seekers, you know, they were, you know, here are these four guys, they had all the money they'd ever need, they, you know, like, what's, what's next, you know, they're, they're personally fulfilled, self-actualized, you know, what's next, and it wasn't enough, and so they were all seekers in that way, but mm-hmm. George was, he seemed to have a real, like, deep sense of purpose about it, like, it was, not, there was nothing faddish about it for him, now, I think uh, he was really, um, looking for something more. Now, Candy, in your book, you have interviewed people who, and I recall there was a, a, perhaps it was a female, who preferred George because he was different. So what does that say about George, and what was different? And then then the second part of that question is, when he went from the mop top to the bearded George, I mean, how did the transition work for fans? Were they scared by that? Uh, but, you know, the girls preferred George because he was different than the other three. Uh, I can't say I remember that quote. Um, I mean, in some sense, they were all different. So I, I'm not, sh- I'm, that's not coming to mind. But I think that, you know, it may have something to do with the whole quiet one business. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I mean, the facial hair, of course, was Strawberry Fields, you know, when they when we first you know, they first presented themselves to the world with their facial hair was certainly many fans didn't like it. Um, but uh, I don't remember anything particular about George. I do, when I think about George and hair, one 
very vivid memory I have is um, I think I, I think I'm remembering this correctly. Did did all things must pass come with a poster? Oh yes, <laughs> very scary. Am I remembering poster. that right? That gorgeous poster with his long hair. It was very dark in front of a stained glass window, and he had the long hair and the beard, and very dark poster. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and of course his um, his his appearance on the Ed so- on the Smothers Brothers, which I always talk about, is mm-hmm. a very significant moment in Beatles history. Although that's you know, I mean, I make that case. I, a lot of people maybe don't see that, but George, you know, did this thing where he, you know, Don and York were out and about doing their thing in late '68, and and then you know George was out and about doing you know shows up in New York and. and lends his support and, you know, what I described it as like sprinkled fairy dust on the sprinkled beetle dust on this mother's brothers and, um, you know, came out supporting their uh, efforts to, uh, for free speech and fighting with the CBS censors and the politics and all that. And basically he said, them, keep, said to them, keep trying to present what were really very, very radical uh, positions for that moment. Not, I mean, not radical, but it took the side of the radicals, you know, being against the war and, and, and you know, which was a very, very big deal at, at that time. So, George, um, I, love, I love watching that clip. It's one of my favorite Beatles things to watch. You know, Candy, with he, 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 he's just so beautiful, too. There you go. I mean, because I've heard some of my students say the same thing, that if they thought just on the surface of it, that George was handsome. Beyond the music and everything else he brought to it, they thought even with some of the changes, especially with the very, very long hair and the facial hair, that George still remained handsome. Students will tell me that by the time we get to White Album, Abbey Road, that John Lennon, for them, is unrecognizable from the guy singing Help, and that uh, uh, Paul's vain attempt at growing a mustache is rather silly, you know, and and they don't really like that type of facial hair, but George somehow stayed attractive enough uh, through the different changes in style and everything else, and that he looked much more natural with the very long hair and jeans than any of the others. So they find that... I think that's you know, true. Yeah, and they, they, they can identify with that, or they find that attractive all the way through, and then we sort of take a look at, well, is there something about George's consistency that you appreciate. And we look at his own personal Beatles song catalog, if you will, and I know that you have pointed out in the past that very indicative of of George's personality is his first solo composition, Don't Bother Me, right? That shows up on the first. And if I, if I think of the, the Alpha and Omega, the first one, Don't Bother Me, and then by the end, I, Me, Mine, it's kind of the same guy, really. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, he, it's almost like he had a... Not that the others didn't have this. Well, I don't know if John... He, he had kind of a, a, a stronger core almost, you know, um, a, a groundedness, um, you know, a more maybe... I, guess, I think I used the phrase before, like a, a sense of purpose about him and a, and a groundedness, but it was also a kind of wariness, I think, which maybe came from managing those the other two big egos. But as far as George's appearance, I think that def- there is, he, yes, he, you can, he, he looks more consistently like the same guy he was. I mean, they were all into clothing and dressing up and being photographed and all that. Um, but I think that 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, that, that appearance on the Smothers Brothers, he looks, I think that's his finest moment in terms of mm-hmm. his appearance. As oh. long as we're talking about appearance, let me just throw in one little thing. Maybe you can comment on it or not. But, um, you know, the more I talk about the Beatles with people and interviews and, and whatnot, and, you know, I always, like, I think about it in new ways, which is one of the joys of it is because it's just, it's like a endless, um, you know, uh, well of fascinating things. But, you know, their physical appearance, I, I think it was talked about at the time, but I think that we underestimate the importance of their beauty and their evolving beauty, their style, their physical appearance. I think it was a really, really important part of this story that maybe has not gotten sufficient attention. What do you think? Well, I mean... Maybe, I mean, you might, you might disagree, but what do, what do you think? Well, I, I do think that um, uh, this is first noted in some ways it, it's... It's it has an easy and a difficult or more complicated explanation, where um, Brian Epstein saw them in the cavern and thought that they were attractive in many 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 different ways, but right. he also made sure early on when he transformed their look and had them tailored to look very slim, very modern, uh, and in some ways you know taking on the fashions from the continent that they would look a certain mm-hmm. way that would enhance their attractiveness, that would help exude their difference and their charm. And he also put them in front of photographers who would also enhance yeah. that. And we, we, right. do, we do a lot with that uh, now more famous photograph that we see of them strolling down the street that's on the cover of uh, one of the other textbooks I use, Jonathan Gould's can't buy me love and my students mm-hmm. will sort of break that down and it, and it looks as if they are dwarfing the buildings behind them so they're always shot in a way that makes them look larger yeah. than life and can enhance their attractiveness it certainly comes across in uh, in a hard day's night and in and many of the other appearances uh so i do mm-hmm. think that uh the way then that they are represented in all the various different media available at the time it really does enhance it now you couldn't necessarily do that with all, certainly all other rock and roll groups where the, the Rolling Stones are calculating their look not to be pretty in a certain way or their attractiveness, right, their attractiveness ca- comes from a different place. Though. Yes, exactly. So I do think yeah. that that's part of it. And, um, and uh, uh, George uh, l- works very well along with the other two who might be at that moment more traditionally handsome, if there is such a thing. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. thank goodness all of those, all of those codes and all of those standards of of beauty have been kind of you know <laughs> stripped for the fantasies that they are right, and we don't necessarily right. we're not necessarily slave to all of that. But um, uh, I do think that that is that is part of the attractiveness of George is so, sort of the handsome brooding, but at the same time with a little bit of a wink. Mm-hmm. So it's not it's not too seriously yeah. brooding. Well, for me. The image of George that I probably is at the top, besides the Meet the Beatles album cover, which I still admire to this day, I could stare at that for hours. George on stage at the concert for Bangladesh really oh, yeah. did something mm-hmm. for me. Whereas, uh, you know, that was in what the movie came out in 71, uh, 72. Uh, I went and saw it across the street from the Boston Common at a theater that's not there anymore. 
and I went alone because my nucleus of friends weren't into the Beatles as heavily as I was. But I went out and bought a white suit, <laughs> <laughs> and I tried to, I tried <laughs> to grow great. a beard. It didn't happen. Um, but that was the image that I admire about George is, is the concert from yes, Bangladesh Yes, he looks so tall and powerful, but yet not threatening. Just this thing, like, none of them ever really looked threatening in any way, right, was part of the beauty. But in the, I'm picturing that George in that in Bangladesh, and I'm re- it, but it's, was he taller than the than like a lot of the people on the stage? Because for some reason, I'm picturing him being extremely tall, and I uh, don't know if that was the case. In retrospect, it seems that way. Oh, we're watching it on TV right here. Uh, producer David Yaz put it up. But yeah, it, he is shot that way to look tall. But the white suit, the orange right, shirt, the low angle, and. Uh, Spectacular! That was one of the uh, that film right. is my favorite concert film. I just love George in that. Sure. Fantastic. Sure. We should also mention, speaking about Bangladesh, that this was also a uh, a uh, trailblazing event that he put together. Uh, it was the first time that you know rock musicians got together for a charity. That's true. It is right, uh, and if, if that not was for a that. very big deal. Right, you would not mm-hmm. have. Uh, I think uh, the first others to pick up on that might have been uh, the No Nukes movement, right? And so uh, from Bangladesh, you mm-hmm. have the No Nukes and then to end apartheid mm-hmm. and then Live Aid and Farm Aid and everything else. Mm-hmm. And, you, know, and you know, I'm thinking about something. I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, Candy. I was thinking about, you know, picture. I'm just thinking about Bangladesh and how he got all these people together. Um, you know, George, you know, all these rock stars kind of hung out together, the, the popistocracy. And, but um, George seemed to have really genuine friendship with Bob Dylan and Eric Clapton um, and I guess the, um, Petty and some of the other Wilburys. But you don't get that sense as much from George and Paul and Ringo that these you know, the other uh, luminaries in that moment that, you know, they hung out. But you, but there was a genuine deep friendship with um, Dylan and with, um, mm-hmm. who's the other person? Clapton and Billy Preston. Clapton, yeah. Mm-hmm. Clapton, yeah. Yeah, well, I agree with that. Yeah. And, uh, it, was just... it wasn't about the ego, you know. He was really about the, I mean, they were all about the music before the ego, which is so different from bands today. Well, but um, but George, I think he 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 didn't he was he was mission focused. You know, he wanted to play music and not be bothered. And mm-hmm. you know, so he uh, he but he he had a an inner strength. I think. That, well, he was uh, he was the only one mm-hmm. that they were going to allow. Um, to bring in outsiders, as you've mentioned. I mean, you know, Clapton plays on on the White Album, and 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 Billy Preston mm-hmm. is on Let It Be. And part of it is, you know, George as the youngest doing that mediation thing, where how can I get mm-hmm. the family to get together? Everybody behaves at home <laughs> when the neighbor comes in, right? And so to get right, Billy right. Preston in, everybody stopped bitching at each other, and and they and they played along. And the same thing with uh, with Clapton, and um, the same thing later on. Uh, uh, when he's on his own with uh, uh, the fellows from Monty Python. I mean, George mm-hmm. was the conduit to the outside yeah. world. Uh, and um, and so in that way, you know, Dylan, who had that sort of admiration or fear or suspicion of the Beatles, especially Lennon, he didn't feel that way about George, right? And so he was the, um, yeah. he could be the, the, the peacemaker, you know, because the others had very, 
extreme egos one way or another mm -hmm. in terms of how they would collaborate with people. I mean, John's, you talk about George being a good conduit to the popistocracy. I love that term. And, uh, you know, Lenin's uh, uh, outside friends, maybe they were musicians, but mostly they were people in the underground and politicians and other radicals later on. And uh, um, so I think that it's great the way that, that George would be able to bring the outsiders in as, as uh, collaborators. Yeah, and, and the, many yeah. People, the many people that I interviewed and when we discussed George, the people that knew him, one of the, the thing that everybody pretty much brought up was his sense of humor. Tom Petty mm -hmm. had said that he was laugh out loud funny. Uh, many people that I interviewed found his sense of humor to be so strong, and he was just a funny guy, and he was a very kind man, and I, I've told this story before, and you probably both have heard it, uh, but I interviewed George many years ago over the phone. He was in Hawaii, and um, we kind of had a great discussion, and after the fact, the record label rep came over and said, listen, George loved the interview, he loved the discussion, and he asked me to tell you uh, that if you want to get an autographed album, to get it to the record label guy, and he would mail it to him, and George would sign it and send it back. And I did. In fact, we sent him probably four or five albums, and he signed yeah. all of them. He signed all of them and sent them back. And I gave him, you know, one to my boss. I had three bosses. I gave one to each boss. I kept one. Uh, so I have the help signed by George, but that was something that he didn't have to do. It was during the Wilbur yeah. years, and he was very, very kind, and he was a lot of fun. Uh, Chachi, did he sign it, George, or, or as I recall, did he sign it Lefty Wilbury? No, he signed it, George, because it was the help album. <laughs> and in retrospect, I probably should have sent Wilburys, but uh, but that, that interview was set up, and I was told, you have to speak to him as if he's Lefty. Wilbury. I'm like, you're kidding. It was, yeah, George is going to be in lefty mode. And so if, if whenever I do play the interview, which I rarely do, I only play snippets, uh, I would, what I did was I asked lefty about his pal, George, and I would ask <laughs> questions about George and George thought that was funny. He thought that was kind of inventive perhaps. And that led the way yeah. to getting, to getting an autograph. And he was just so much fun. And that, that, that Liverpudlian accent coming over the phone, it was like almost you know, an out-of-body experience. I was like, oh, my God. I can't, you are so lucky. I mean, I can't imagine having that opportunity. You are so lucky. I know you've interviewed, I, I mean, you've, a lot of, I mean, I'm very Ringo, lucky. obviously. I'm very lucky. And and you've interviewed Paul, obviously, Many right? times, yes. Both, all many three. times. Yeah, George yeah. just once. The other two, uh, a bunch of times. Yoko many times. And, and Yoko just celebrated her birthday. Uh, but yeah, right. George, George was amazing. And I have a couple of funny stories about, uh, from Danny Harrison about George. And there was a story that, uh, you know, growing up, Danny, uh, always just thought his dad was a gardener because his first seven years of his <laughs> life, he was just working in the yard, never did much. And one day Danny goes to school and out of the blue, the kids start singing yellow submarine to him and he gets home. He has no clue why. Why are these kids singing Yellow Submarine? So he has no clue, clue why. He goes home. He tells his dad. And then he says to, to George, why didn't you tell me that you were a Beatle? I had no idea. Why didn't you tell me? And George replies, and I quote, oh, sorry. I probably should have told you that. I mean, the guy is just so funny. Oh, my God. That is, how old was he at the time? He was only like, six, seven years old. Yeah. He said the first oh seven God, years of my life, so I, funny. I thought my dad was a gardener. That is hilarious. It must have been so weird for them, all of them, growing uh, up. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of hard. I actually saw um, 
Sean last night on TV. With, oh, Colbert. Um, Les Claypool. Yeah, I'm going to go see him at the House of Blues. Look like I, I, I liked him. There was something that, that had a nice sound. Um, anyway, yeah, George, um, he, he, you know, the gardening thing also, um, I think earlier I was talking about why George has suddenly become my favorite Beatle. I think that I, I guess I, I'm realizing that I had more of a simpatico than I realized over the years because I've recently gotten really, really into gardening because it is incredibly relaxing and meditative. And I guess there's research that shows even like dealing, uh, digging in the soil and the dirt, like it has health benefits. So, you know, after what they've been through, especially he, you know, would never was so into the fame and all that. Um, it makes so much sense to me that he found gardening to be a thing, you know, that he, his love of that is, it just makes so much sense to me. Yeah. Olivia used to call him George of the earth because that's all he did was work outside in the yard. But this is going to be totally off base because I always seem to bring up the monkeys when I talk to Candy. I don't know if this means <laughs> anything, but I was a huge George fan. And at the same time, I was a huge Peter fan. And I always yeah. thought that Peter Talk kind of held the same position as George. And I don't know if you agree with that. But nonetheless, I kind of yeah. see some similarity. Why is it that I love George and I loved Peter uh, from the monkeys? Don't know, but that's the way it is for me. So, in any case, yeah. <laughs> no comments needed on that one. No, no, I think I that, that the Peter, Peter, Talk, a- Peter Talk was definitely the George parallel in the monkeys. Yes. And I loved them both, and I uh, enjoy. And Peter just celebrated. Yes, they were both a little bit spiritual, both a little bit more about sort of you know what was going on, like brought the world in a little bit more and more maybe engaged and kind of commenting commentary. Yeah, I, um, well, it's not for Daisy. Peter would have been my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, listen, Candy Leonard, thank you for coming on the, sh- the podcast today, Doctor Candy Leonard, the author of. I would say in the top five, maybe the top three of my favorite Beatle books. This is a road that no one has taken uh, in her book. It's called Beatleness, How the Beatles and Their Fans Remade the World, The Fans I View by Dr. Candy Leonard. And I thoroughly enjoy it. I've, I, my favorite place to read this, Mr. Gallant, is, you know where is, it is? Uh, it's, of course, it's at Scusset Beach in the summertime. It's on Chachi. the beach. I love to bring this yeah. book. And Steph would, my wife Stephanie, the beautiful Stephanie, would say, are you bringing that book again? You've read it like three or four times. It's like, <laughs> well, I love the book. And it's, the pictures yeah. inside are great. And it's just a real great exploration of what the fans were going through back in those days. In the Candy, 60s. I take, pardon me, Josh. This Candy, David. I, <laughs> David, I produce. Uh, I, I talk every once in a while. Um, I take it we find the book on Amazon. Anywhere we find uh, good books, or where do we find the book? Yes, it's on Amazon, and I'm gonna. If people do buy it, um, they should buy the paperback rather than the hardcover, because the paperback has some uh, updated preface and some other, you know, new material in the back, and and it all the typos were, you know, how books sometimes have. Chach has so, the paperback. Um, if you of gonna, course, yes, it has. It has uh, also. So as a great guide if you're in a, a book reading group. And uh, not only on Amazon, it's also available currently at the Suffolk University Bookstore. Oh, you're kidding. As, oh, required, right. as a required textbook for you my class. You got it in the bookstore? <laughs> it's in the bookstore, yeah. You, you did that. Required of course. Reading? Of course. That's wonderful. Of course. Now, some students, I believe I, I, now, Candy, I think it is available in digital format. So 
some students have they have they have bought the book that way. So if they got their laptop open in class, they actually have it open to their textbook. And it's in an audio book. Is that what you said? Yeah. Yes, it's also an audio book. So it's available you, in, in all the formats. Did you voice it? No, I didn't. They hired, um, there was an actress who did it. Um, they, you know, I found out that it was an audio book actually after they produced it. Um, but I guess, you know, I, of course I was told. She does a good job. There are a couple of words she pronounces, you know, uh, I might have said a little differently, a little different emphasis here and there. But, but basically the audio book is, is good. You, you know, know you wanna, Candy, uh, you know. I think you have a lovely voice, Candy, and I just might mention that we do audiobooks here at the Boston Podcast Network in Westwood. So you know, really, you do that? <laughs> sure, no we idea. do, Chachi. I yeah. had no idea. Look at yeah. that. Really? Or you could have your My book queen. narrated by Chachi Lopret. That would yes. be fun too. I could do My that. My Queen's for you. accent doesn't uh, get in the way. <laughs> it's lovely. <laughs> anyway, so Dr. Candy Leonard, thank you for coming on the podcast today to talk about George. I know we're going to have you back because you are. One of our favorites, and we just love you. And uh, thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you. The feeling is mutual. Thanks for the opportunity. Professor, say goodbye to Candy Leonard. Candy, we will see you <laughs> soon out on the Beatles circuit, no doubt. That's right. We <laughs> okay, are building. We're take building. Care. I look forward to it. Okay, Candy, you take care. Thanks for joining us tonight. Hi, everybody. I'm Chami Perel. Let me take a minute to tell you about the Boston Podcast Network. How would you like your own podcast? The Boston Podcast Network can produce one for you. Whether you're a lawyer, financial advisor, business owner, or really any kind of professional, you should have your voice heard through this exciting new medium. A good podcast is more powerful than traditional advertising. If a prospective client hears your podcast through their earbuds, you're already in their head, literally. Pod617.com will help you deliver a message and build relationships clients and centers of influence will delight in being a guest on your show go to pod617.com to start planning and in the meantime listen to the great shows they've already produced the irreverent bitchless bride podcast the hilarious show known as shawshanked and the wild trip through the paranormal that is Monsterland. be part of the pod revolution visit pod617.com in pod we trust Oh, that was great. I love Candy Leonard. Dr. Leonard, she's awesome. Uh, uh, local uh, uh, local favorite of ours here, and uh, she's really nice. And we're going to get our next guest on the phone momentarily, Rob Murray from Studio 2, the early Beatles tribute who plays George. But I do want to, uh, in, in our mid-show, I just want to say a couple things as we get Rob on the phone. Uh, we have a big Beatles event coming up called Myths, Movies, and Music, the Beatles Experience. Saturday night, March 30th at Studio G in Plymouth, a great little showcase room, holds about 160 people, an amazing evening of never-before-seen Beatle films, newly discovered sound, our special guest Beatles film archivist, Mr. Eric Taros, it's all ages, families are invited, there'll be beer and wine, which is great, we're going to tell stories, play Beatle trivia to win Beatle prizes, we have some Beatle vinyl to give away, Beatle art. You'll see a fantastic display of Beatle memorabilia from the Tom Kelly collection. Meet other Beatle fans. I know the professor is going to be there, he told me earlier. We'll have a Beatles sing-along if we can get you guys drinking enough. And we'll sing to the Beatles cartoons. For more info, go to studiogplymouth.com or go to Eventbrite and search Myths, Movies, and Music, The Beatles Experience. Tickets are only $25. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'll be your host and our special guest, Mr. Eric Taros. So, David Yaz, our faithful uh, producer and spiritual advisor, uh, we're moving on to talk more about George Harrison and speak to a gentleman by the name of Rob Murray. So, 
Hello? Oh, and there's the phone right there. <laughs> we're doing it real time. And uh, so we're going to be speaking to Rob Hello? Murray. Hello, there he is, Rob. How are you? It's Chachi. Hi, good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. We're here with uh, David Gallant, Professor Gallant from Suffolk University. You know David, right? Yes, I do. How are you doing? I'm doing okay, Rob. Doing okay. Now, Studio 2, the early Beatles tribute, is my favorite Beatle tribute band. They're unlike other tribute bands. First of all, their age. A lot of Beatle tribute bands are, you know, they're in their 60s. <laughs> but the early Beatle, the Studio 2, the early Beatles tribute, are young guys, uh, early 30s around there. And they embrace the Beatles music, the period from the Hamburg days up to and including the first American tour. And they do a little further than that, too. They, they do a bunch of different things. But they're so fun, so exciting. Period uh, instruments, uh, the Vox speakers, the clothes, the hair, and they are marvelous. And if I had to be, and I've told Rob this many times, if I was younger, I'd be Ringo. Uh, but I'm not. <laughs> so there's another Ringo in the band. But Rob has the, uh, the joy and the pleasure and I suppose the privilege of playing George Harrison. So tell me what that's like, Rob, when you go on stage. You guys are the hottest working band. You know last July they had three days off. They worked every day in July. That's it. Yeah, it's amazing. And they're a great band, and they're dedicated to their craft. But what's it like for you to play George? Was he your favorite Beatle? Uh, from the start, yes. Uh, favorite Beatle. I really liked his uh, style of playing. I really liked how he didn't say much on stage. <laughs> um, <laughs> I really liked his uh, Gretsch Country Gentleman guitar. Um, so I just inspired, I was inspired to play guitar from George Harrison and uh, I mean when I started playing guitar I didn't think I'd actually be in a, a Beatles tribute band but um, I guess it's fitting that from about 1996 until now I think I've consumed uh, I don't know She Loves You 1500 times or more a day <laughs> <laughs> you know you guys have played probably as much as the Beatles did what 1200 plus shows before they hit it big because you guys play everywhere and it's a lot of fun but what are some of the some of George's nuances that you have to do on stage uh, you know you probably put yourself in the zone when you get out there but what do you need to do to be the perfect George Harrison on stage for me I, I get in the mindset of what I've studied seeing how seeing how George stands and plays during the Washington Coliseum show and the Ed Sullivan show he uh with he kind of switches between his right and left feet while tapping and occasionally he kind of swings his right foot in like a half circle motion to the beat and it, it actually seemed hard at first because I didn't have beetle boots, but when I got beetle boots, I realized, oh, he must have did that because these hills are not the greatest things to stand in without, you know, maybe if he moved around a little bit, it actually, it actually uh, wasn't a pain to my knees or my shins. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're in the, um, I will tell you, Rob, we're in the studio right now. We have a television set up and our producer, David Yaz, put you guys on the screen. So we are watching uh, Studio 2 in black and white uh, playing on the screen here, and there you are playing George, and there you turn to color. Isn't that great? 
And uh, this is an older. This is <laughs> I know this is an older tape because there's a different Ringo back then. But there you are, and you you know I didn't think George had could had had dancing. Uh, a dancing thing down. He, he, like you said, he he danced back from one leg to the other, and he dances a little bit in a hard day's night. I didn't. He didn't come across as a great dancer to me, but uh, <laughs> but you you have to do all that on stage to be George. And and do you purposely not smile a lot? <laughs> yeah, uh, he only smiled once in a while. So I I try to I think of okay, where where in what songs are there films or videos where he is smiling or not smiling. So I try to, I try to, uh, do that. If I, if I, in the moment remembering, but usually it's, my brain goes into like a, like program and I just start playing the parts and it just, it just comes out. The George so, Harrison <clears throat> persona comes out. It's, Rob, it's, have you, yeah. in, in the materials that you study, I'm sure you've, especially the, the, the era that, that you guys really have kind of, really played to and developed and really made sure that you've almost perfected that face. Anything on film as early as what we see from the Granada television special where you can see them play some other guy at the cavern. That George too, like you're saying, the Washington Coliseum, that kind of controlled chaos to a film television special, whether it was here or in England, to say A Hard Day's Night. Is George is your George consistent through all of that, or do you notice differences based upon the venue? There are differences uh, based on the venue and time frame. Even though the time frame is relatively short, you know, from September '62 to February '64, but you know, I think it, you know, based on venue based on the time frame of their you know of their playing have you know i guess i guess if i'm trying to get the word straight here <laughs> um it does very it does vary between you could say eras if you put that granada tv special of some other guy yeah. um from 62 as the early years right then you're you know, you put Ed Sullivan show or even before then the Royal Variety show. Right. Right. From November 63. That's like Beatlemania. That's like the start of Beatlemania. Uh, I think George's persona on stage changed a little bit, probably based on the excitement from the crowd has gr by that point had grown, you know, an ex a considerable amount. Right. Right. There's even that, the, there's even that you know, cavern unusual or that 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 in between moment where they have that uh, they make this television appearance as they're touring Sweden <laughs> and you see this on like a Swedish television show kind of like an American bandstand or a top of the pops and no kids really in the audience are going to know what the heck they're singing it's almost like the Budokan in Japan in in 66 and so that's a it's a very different element to it and uh but um, you know, he's it's he's got such important moments on stage that it's almost as if George surprises you, right, with some of the performances or or his his entrance and his coloring in the, in certain songs. I was also looking at. I know that you guys are mostly concerned with the performances and some of the interchanges, but uh, I couldn't help thinking about this when I was watching or, or sent it to my 
my daughter, who's in eighth grade, they're studying a Midsummer Night's Dream. So I sent her teacher the clip from the show Around the Beatles where they do the forest lover scene from Midsummer Night's Dream and George plays the moonlight in that. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's really, uh, it's really a lot of oh, fun. Yeah. You have seen it. So are you guys ever going to yeah. recreate that on stage? It's squarely <laughs> within that era. <laughs> um, it hasn't crossed our minds yet, but you never know. Someday down the road, uh, someone might say, hey, we'll, we'll pay you to learn this skit and do it for Halloween, and we might do it, you know? Mm-hmm. There you go. <laughs> so, so, Rob, what are some of the George songs that you get to sing uh, from, the, from those early days, the Hamburg days? Oh, Hamburg days... I uh, really enjoy performing uh, Nothing Shaken but ah, the Leaves on the Trees. Great track. That's um, great. Glad All Over. Love that song. Uh, which is uh, Carl, good old Carl Perkins. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, in, that Hamburg year, in the Hamburg years, uh, George also played Roller Beethoven, but much different than the, uh, than the uh, album version. It's faster tempo instead of one solo there's two solos, at least thankfully for the Star Club recordings, you get to hear that particular version. Um, there's also Everybody's Trying to Be My Baby, also another Carl Perkins number. Um, but even more obscure songs, um, we perform uh, A Picture of You by Joe Brown, uh, which they performed on their, I believe it was their second or third time on BBC radio in 62. Um, we also do, I also play Sheik of Araby, which uh, Ah, is on the DECA audition. I I was going to mention the, the DECA audition, which uh, at least from what survives, uh, what's always surprising to my students. And I pointed out is how many songs they had George do lead in this audition, which was kind of a, well, make or break, right? Sheik of Araby and, uh, even their work, oh, yeah. his work on Three Cool Cats, uh, you know, those are those are kind of interesting little gems in a lot of ways. And t- and talk. Oh, yeah, those. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Rob. I was going to say those songs there, um, Sheik of Araby, Three Cool Cats, and Take Good Care of My Baby. Those are the only surviving versions of those songs, audio-wise, is from the Deca editions. Wow. And. Um, I mean, they did perform them, at least performed um, Three Cool Cats on the BBC, but that tape hasn't been discovered yet. So until that's discovered, we won't, we just have one version. Oh, we're watching a tape of you guys, and boy, that, what is it, the Country Gentleman guitar? That's a big guitar. Oh, yeah, it's, uh, it's big, but I've, I've gotten used to it. Um, it was big when I first got the guitar, uh, heavy uh, and very wide, but it's now, I just play it so much that to me, someone, you know, you say it's a big guitar, but to me, it's, it's just, it's just my guitar. <laughs> right. And you know, you, you have all the, uh, you know, the period instruments and the Vox speakers and it just, it's such a pleasure. I got to tell you, I love watching you guys. It's such a pleasure to watch you and it must be amazing to be on stage. And, uh, you know, I don't know if you know this professor, but many, many years ago, Rob, uh, produced my Breakfast with the Beatles show for a while. Did he? Right, Rob? Am I? Um, that's true. Correct. Yeah. Yes. Uh, that was um, in the fall semester. I was in my second to last year at Berklee College of Music uh, in see, September to December of two thousand eight. 
Now, he, were, did, were you earning uh, credit for that? Was this an internship? Yeah, it was an internship. And uh, did uh, WZLX pay you? No. Really? You don't, you don't, don't pay college interns? Well, it's they, not do, now. The law. Well, they, they do, do now. They do now, but yeah. not back then. And back Rob then. was great. <laughs> he was a great resource because he knows the microphones. He knows what the Beatles used in those days. The whole band are very meticulous in everything that they use, and that's what one of the things I admired about them. And he's an encyclopedia in was his this, head. Was this prior to the era when I was bringing students into the studio? Or yes. Like, really? Okay. I think so, right? Because I don't think the professor brought yeah. any students in while you were there. This was before that. This was early on. And it was a pleasure to have him at the station. I've grown to love him and his, his brother and his mom, and just great people. You know, I, I might have uh, forgotten some of the times that I've seen you guys play, and I, I do regret not catching you uh, the last time you guys were at the Orpheum in Foxborough. I happen to know uh, one, of the, uh, one of the people who helps uh, run that. She's also the, the director of my daughter's dance company in, in Foxborough. But um, do you, you guys do Cry for a Shadow. Oh, yes, yeah, so we do Craft for a Shadow. Yeah. Uh, I think it holds the distinction, Chachi, is the only sort of Harrison-Lennon composition. That is correct. Very early on, uh, great track, and uh, that is correct. The only time they were accredited uh, together, John Lennon and George Harrison. So, Studio 2, what's the website, Rob? How do people uh, find you guys? You can find us. Our website is uh, Studio 2, that's T-W-O for 2, tributeband.com and um, they like I said professor they play everywhere do you have any dates in front of you that you want to plug in uh, in the next uh, month or so if not that's okay because I'll I'll pull them up on my phone and I'll do that but if you don't have um, them, I can I can pull it up on my computer screen here okay. I don't know offhand there's okay. so many dates they, they uh, it's hard to remember it is I can't tell you professor how much these guys work they're out there all the time they're going to um they're going to reach uh, Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000-hour rule, right, from Outliers, where you talk about right. the Beatles in Hamburg. They'll reach their 10,000 <laughs> hours. But, Rob, if, we, if your Ringo ever takes ill, Chachi, I'm sure, would be willing to get behind the kit as your Jimmy Nickel. Because <laughs> <laughs> no one's going to know anyway. Yes. Okay, so I have the yeah, schedule. Um, go ahead. I'm sorry, Rob. Go. I was going to say, when we uh, do a tour of Holland, we'll get you on it for... Drumming, <laughs> <laughs> not Thank Holland, you. not Holland Mass. I hope. Yeah, they'll take me to the to the uh, train station and give me a, a Timex watch and say goodbye. <laughs> so I'm looking at the schedule and I know that let's see, we're, you're in they're everywhere. Madison, Maine on March 1st, Bartlett, New Hampshire on March 2nd at Adatash and uh, some uh, was that Somerset before then. Next month there, uh, are we in March now? No, we're in March now. Yeah, uh, prof- uh, David, uh, yes, can you put us in March? And I'll make some dates here. <laughs> There you go, up to the left. There, that little arrow there. Okay, they're working every weekend in March. Uh, let's see. Let's do March 15th in Tewksbury, Massachusetts. Uh, March 16th in Jeffersonville, Vermont. Uh, March 23rd in Ludlow, Vermont. March Chachi, br- bring your skis because it's at Okemo. I've n- I never ski. Uh, <laughs> March 29th in Fairfield, Maine. And, and some other events sprinkled in there. And I don't know if you know this, Professor, but the guys, the boys in Studio 2 just played Daryl's house up in New York. Really? Talk about that event. How did that go, uh, Rob? Oh, that was fabulous. Um, I, uh, I had not, not, have not heard of the venue until we booked it, honestly. But when I started looking into it, I went, oh, yeah, Hall & Oates. 
this would be a cool venue to play. And then we went there and, and, uh, even though it was snowing, there was probably four inches of snow on the ground and they told us you can't play two sets, play one set instead. Uh, the place was nearly sold out. Unbelievable. And they're a lot of fun. And as you know, David Gallant, uh, you've seen them before. They're great. Fans love them. I remember they did the drive-in for us at, in uh, um, the Menden Twin drive-in a couple summers ago. Yeah. And they're fantastic. I'm a big fan of the band. I love them. Uh, all their members are great. And uh, so Rob Murray from Studio 2. Professor Gallant, trivia question. What does Studio 2 mean in the Beatle world? Uh, it means the the studio that uh, was used in um, uh, at uh, Apple EMI. That's right. In February twenty. Oh, thank you. In February twenty on February twenty fifth <laughs> will be the anniversary of when I went to Studio Two and with Tony Bennett by invitation and uh, was in Studio Two and it was a lot of fun. Abbey Road Studios it was great. Rob, welcome to the segment of our podcast known as Chachi's Humble Brag Corner. Yes, I do that every podcast. So, Rob, <laughs> thank you for coming on our podcast today. We really appreciate it. We love Studio Two, and I'm advising everyone listening to look at your calendars, look for the band, because you're going to be in for a treat. They do something that no other Beatle bands do. They're really uh, an amazing treat to watch and listen to. And they're a lot of fun. So, Rob, thank you for coming on our, pod, our podcast, Get Back to the Beatles. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for having me on. Okay, buddy. We'll talk soon. See you later. Do you dare enter Monsterland? You may not know that some 50 miles west of Boston sits what may be one of the most diverse and comprehensive paranormal locations in the world. If you listen to the Monsterland podcast, The Secrets will be revealed to you. I'm Maddie Blake, actor, TV host, and believer, and I'm fortunate to be co-hosting the show with the author of the book known as Monsterland, Ronnie LeBlanc. Thanks, Maddie. Well, you said it, we're practically next door to the Lemster State Forest, a place that's had decades-long list of strange phenomena, including UFOs, paranormal activity, Bigfoot, strange sightings, occult, and military activity. Absolutely, and Ronnie, on the Monsterland podcast, we'll be joined by a murderer's row of experts from all over the world to finally figure out if these claims belong in the myth or monster land files. So make sure you listen, binge, and believe as each chapter of our mysterious journey unfolds. You can find the Monsterland podcast on pod617.com, the mighty pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network. Join the passionate fans who we're already hearing from. See you soon in Monsterland. Welcome back to Get Back to the Beatles. This is producer Dave. I'm hijacking the show for a moment here because uh, I'm a TV freak, and I happen to notice that on the match game, and Chach and, and Professor, you're both fans of the iconic game show, The Match Game. Love it. Okay. Absolutely. Well, I noticed there was a Beatles moment. This is the reboot of uh, The Match Game with Alec Baldwin hosting. And uh, so there's just one question that has to do with the Beatles, and I want you guys to play along. So you'll hear the question, and then we'll pause it and see if you guys match okay, the celebrities now, or the contestants. Now, before you play it, yes. I mean, I'm, a, I'm an old-school match game fan when celebrities were real celebrities. Right. So I'm looking at the right. six contestants. Jason, obviously, is Jason Alexander. Yep. I don't, uh, I don't think I know the other four, five. Nisi, I don't know what that actor's last name is. She's been in a lot of comedies. Oh, Mike, um, That's Michael Che yeah, from, from SNL. Uh, 
It's Constance Zimmer, actress who's been in a bunch of stuff. I remember her from the movie Heat. She was Al Pacino's love interest in Heat. <laughs> Judah Freelander. From, Judah Freelander uh, yeah. from 30 Rock and yep. other things. Yep. And Eric, I don't know who she is. So I don't. You know, know. what <laughs> happened to Charles? People like Charles Nelson. Oh yeah, they, they don't. They don't make you know, them like Charles. Oh, Richard, Dawson. Richard, Richard Dawson. Richard Dawson. You know, yeah. Fanny Flag. <laughs> Fanny Flag. Yes. Fanny Flag. You know. Yeah. Or Stokey the, Carmichael would be on. Nipsey on Russell. Nipsey, Nipsey Russell. Russell. No, no yeah. he was on. Uh, he was on. I think uh, to tell the truth. Yeah, but he was. In, he was on Match Game, and of course, Gene Rayburn, the ultimate. Besides Peter Marshall from Hollywood Squares, Gary Berghoff would crop up now and again. He would. Yeah. Radar. The radar. That's correct. Yeah. Okay, so what's All the right. game? So here we go. But we'll, we'll we'll take a listen to what uh, Alec Baldwin's question, and uh, we'll play along. Here we go. We join the game in progress. Here he goes. Paul McCartney revealed that one of the Beatles' biggest songs was actually about his privates. <laughs> now you'll never hear blank the same way again. Uh, Holy uh, cow. Now, of course, uh, 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 Chachi had dinner with uh, Sir Paul and Alec Baldwin one evening. I did. They were both together. <laughs> I had dinner with <laughs> them. Is that true? We're totally extending, true. We're extending oh the God. humble brag corner. Yes. Yeah, in addition, Lorne Michaels, Woody Harrelson, uh, Woody Harrelson Conan O'Brien, Judy Collins, me, Tony Bennett's son. Just as usual, just Chachi, pick up those names from off the floor Thank on, you the, on your way out, all right? <laughs> Thank you very much. So all let right. me think now. Um, I'll see if I can get the part where they play the music. Again. <laughs> oh, this is, oh, no. All right, well, oh, okay. at least we got some music right here. That's why I'm here. Paul McCartney revealed that one of the Beatles' biggest songs was actually about his privates. Now you'll never hear a blank the same way again. What song? Dude is like, hey, man. The celebrities on the show look very confused, by the way. This is like high school. I'm confused. I, I missed that class. Did you take notes? Did you take notes? Wait, Alan, what's the question again? You take notes? What's the question again? You know who Paul McCartney is, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You're not the it, It's hard. It took me a while to come up with even... Okay, it's been a hard day's night. Ooh, <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one. Well, now see, that would be a bit blatant now, would it? Right? I mean, you could go for "Got to Get You Into My Life," but that's about pot. Uh, so, um, well, I don't know if right, it's gonna, they mean well, literally, literally. I've never heard any story that Paul says he wrote a song about his penis. I, I haven't heard that. and I It's have, not to be I, taken literally, Chach. I, I have, uh, <laughs> you know. It's fun. Well, you know what? They, um, they, they, they Over time, they misremember things. I think it could be another story to uh, uh, to embellish uh, the catalog, the back catalog for sales. And I, I'm holding relatively song by song what the, the Beatles' Bible is, Ian McDonald's Revolution in the Head. And I don't think he has indexed Paul's private parts and attached it to a certain entry. I can't believe that the professor found a way to shoehorn in uh, Ian McLennan. What's the guy's, what's your guy's poison <laughs> name He mentions there? that book every podcast, just like I mentioned who I know. You know it what? has if, nothing if to I, do with the magic game. If I hadn't come from uh, class today, then. Uh, you know what? Uh, yeah, we're going to need an answer. This is, uh, wow, geez, this is, this is really kind of difficult, you know? See, I don't think there's a, re- a real answer. So you no, there's have, not. You have to make a, you make a thing up. Yeah. Technically, if you were on the show, you'd want to match these dumb celebrities. Yeah, you were so you think of the dumb right. celebrities. You know what? I would say it's drive my car. Ooh, that's not bad. There okay, you go. let's hear okay, what I'll the panel has to say. It's a hard day's night. Hard let's day's see night. if we match anybody. This woman gets it. I think I said I want to hold your hand. 
Jason? Oh, you said that? Yeah, well, I mean, Joy to myself, you know. You pegged all wrong. Jason Alexander. <laughs> you picked a really good one. If he had the yellow submarine, he would probably let it let be. It be. Let, let it be. Let it be. Uh, yeah. Let it be. I don't know why that's a good answer. All right, but, uh, Nisi. Okay, listen, Joy, let me say this, all right now. If the category was hip hop, I would have been right there with you. <laughs> but I said Maxwell Silver Hammer. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that's a good that's one. Pretty good. Great song. I love this song over here, like, oh, I didn't think about that. <laughs> Michael Che, you Beatles aficionado, you. <laughs> I love the Beatles. I'm a big Monkeys fan, personally. <laughs> Joy, I'm with Jason. I went, let it be. Let it be. Oh. Let it be. Have you never disappointed anyone before? <laughs> Constance, remember the woman I don't want her to let it be. No, you don't. Right. That's why it's you not a good answer. Well, I was confused as to how to write the answer, which is already an At this issue. point, it doesn't matter. Here we go. Constance. I said, I want to hold your blank <laughs> hands. Yeah. I want to hold your... Judah. Well, you know, looking for yellow submarine. Oh, okay, I know the answer to this one, the correct answer, because my name is Judah, and <laughs> the correct answer is Hey Jude. <laughs> for no particular reason, I guess. Listen, I don't know if the, if the problem is knowing the Beatles too well. I should have been with you on this one, but instead I too Maxwell Silverhand. Maxwell Silverhand. So she matched with no one, and neither did you guys. <laughs> they, they, they must know the questions beforehand. No. That they both came up with Maxwell Silva. These people don't know the names of those songs. <laughs> that is pretty obscure. But it it's is. funny It's funny how with most bands, uh, I think of uh, Rolling Stones or Aerosmith, uh, like so many of them are just ways to disguise sexual acts, you know? Yeah. And the and the Beatles, they disguised a lot, but it was it was like second level. Am I right about that? I mean, would you agree? They did, a, yeah. Paul was known for that. He did a lot of metaphors. Yeah, I guess um, uh, there was some, there was some suggestion or or fear over the song as early as "Please Please Me," okay? That mm -hmm. uh, that that was was all about sex, and that what uh, the Beatles had experienced in the dingy back corners in Hamburg. Uh, made their way into song in some coded ways. You know, I kind of agree with you, but I don't think they ever had to say please. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Well, well, thank you, gentlemen, for uh, playing along. That was fun. And that was David Yez, our producer. He always has a game for us. Yeah, right. Professor Gallant, as always, it's always good to see you. A pleasure, Chachi. And uh, mothers and fathers. Okay. If you have students that are looking for college, go to Suffolk University, take David's class. Absolutely. Uh, big boss, the man, the spiritual advisor, Mr. David Yaz. Thank you, David. Thank you, Josh. My name's Chachi LaPred, and I host Breakfast with the Beatles on the WUMB radio network, 91.9 FM in Boston. Every Saturday morning, you can listen on the web, WUMB.org. Every Sunday morning on the Seacoast Oldies Station, 92.1971 in New Hampshire and Maine. You can listen online at seacoastoldies.com. And today's episode of Get Back to the Beatles is brought to you by Subaru of New England and Direct Tire and Auto Service. And stick around to pod617.com. There's lots of great pods on the website and on iTunes. I especially love John O'Neill's Fright Night. I've been on that once. I want to go back on it again because I love horror films. And we appreciate you tuning in and listening. Subscribe so you get us all the time. And uh, thank you all. Gentlemen, thank you. We'll be back very soon with another episode 
of Get Back to the Beatles. Take care of yourself, everybody. See you soon. Make sure to check for the latest episode of Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette at pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network.